Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Well, I was this morning listening to my favorite podcast. I brought it up several times. and I'm I gonna, know where this is going. I'm going to bring it up again. Fly on the Wall with Dana Carvey and David Spade. <laughs> and I do think that whenever I bring it up, Luke thinks I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, because you've seen the master of disguise. I, I swear to God, Dana Carvey and David Spade feel like my friends. I, I love these men. I would die for these men. And then this morning, when I saw that they had a new episode where the guest was, take a guess, who do you think it was? Oh, uh, was it Mike Myers? They've already had him on. <laughs> Even better, Jay Leno. <laughs> I fucking freaked out because I realized the second I saw that name on my phone, you know, I kind of like Jay Leno. <laughs> and I think I think I automatically start. What lo- do you mean you kind of like Jay Leno? What the fuck are you talking about? I just think I automatically kind of start liking people like that more when they're no longer the face of the monoculture. That's interesting. Like culture has now passed Jay Leno by. We see what the late night talk shows are now. People say there is no monoculture, and to some degree they're right. There's no longer a talk show host like Jay Leno who is supposed to be the middle of the middle of the middle. They're all liberals now. That's that's what they're expected to be. <laughs> they're, they're either they're either liberals or they're like full blown like ultra nationalist mega chuds. Right, like Gutfelds, that guy on Fox News. You've heard of him, right? <laughs> yeah. Gut, he's the he's Gutfelds. the comedian, right? <laughs> yeah, he's the funny one. There's only two acceptable modes, and they're both just like different ways of being based. And by based, I mean extremely cringe. There's like the Jeff Tiedrick like fave star account where it's like uh yeah good news everybody uh you want you want some to cheer up your day uh, uh jim jordan asked for documents from the doj this week and the doj told him to fuck off that's one thing and then the other thing is just yeah gutfeld uh i don't know complaining about woke shit or something whereas the tide definitely turned at least in terms of like late night culture when jimmy <laughs> fallon did the the hair thing with donald <laughs> trump you know touch, touched his hair because that's when having someone like that on became enabling fact fascism you know uh talk shows had to take a stand God. saturday night live had to take a stand uh and jay leno is from another era where the whole point of him was that you didn't know if he was a republican or a democrat yeah right because he just had like the most toothless like middle of the road satire just like yeah utterly yeah bloodless jokes that were like yeah not encoded one way or the other that's right and now that he is still that <laughs> I find it you find it charming, a comforting bomb, charmingly anachronistic. <laughs> In a polarized age, Jay Leno comforts a nation. And I also just think he's a really interesting guy because he's a fucking freak. Wait, by the way, is he okay? Because wasn't he in like a horrific accident recently? Not only is he okay, he's back on the road. I mean, if you see if you've seen a picture of his face, you can definitely tell he's just had surgery. Sure, but... but he's back on the road, like he's doing. Like, does he do a stand up thing or every? couple of days he does stand-up he still tours all over america going to see jay leno do stand-up fucking tons of people what is his material like i'm sure well i i haven't (laughs) i haven't seen his recent stuff i'm sure it's it's like similar all the reference points are just from the 1990s like it's literally just like stuff about like it's just you can go and hear uh jay leno make like mean jokes about monica Lewinsky. when he was on the tonight show on weekends he would go do stand-up like he would do big gigs all over the united states he'd just take the private jet 
straight from NBC to Connecticut or like probably uh, probably making like a thousand dollars a second for those appearances probably and now he's out I mean he's probably not <laughs> performing on Broadway but he he's out there in like some casino somewhere as we speak when okay he had two horrific accidents recently okay one of them was he was working on one of his cars and like it caught fire and he caught fire his face <laughs> caught fire there's you know okay. you don't want any part of your body to catch fire right that's never ideal but your face <laughs> you really don't want to catch on fire now if you've seen pictures of him leaving the hospital in his trademark denim um <laughs> you can tell he was in an accident but they've made great advancements in face reconstruction surgery so he does look presentable but then a week maybe two weeks after that he got in a motorcycle accident oh my god as, as he explained on the podcast you know a 72 year old guy riding an 82 year old motorcycle uh, you know what could happen <laughs> Uh, I mean, he could have had the same thought before he got on the motorcycle. So he broke a couple of ribs and he like <laughs> hurt his kneecaps or something. And he apparently has missed all of two shows because of this this accident. So wow. he's he's back on the road. He's, the people need laughter. Well, yes. And this is one of the reasons why I kind of like him now, because he's an actual freak. Like him and Seinfeld are two guys who conquered show business, got to the very top of the mountain. Like probably hundreds of millions of dollars they have. Yes, and yet they still have this incredible deranged work ethic of like i gotta keep working i gotta keep going you know i'm only a real comedian if i'm out there performing in front of the crowds day in day out you know they really think of themselves as these like almost blue collar like lunch pail guys who go out they work and that work defines them and what's especially funny about that is him and seinfeld have this like adamant belief that comedy is not a vehicle for self-expression <laughs> like there's a reason that leno actually got famous in the first place he was always regarded as this consummate craftsman he was this great stage presence this great joke writer if you watch the appearances he would make on letterman's show in the 80s he's very forceful the audience loved him for a reason and listening to him on this podcast he's talking about watching chris rock's new special so he keeps up on comedy too and he's he was talking about how great it was and how he thought some of the bad reviews were misplaced and he said something like you know it's really hard to do a whole hour of jokes it's not nothing to create a full hour where it's joke 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 he says you see comedians who rely on crowd work who rely on sort of pandering stuff you know hello baltimore you know that kind of thing <laughs> for just being able to like have a dense set full of jokes and leno incredibly has never done an hbo special because he realized that when you put your jokes out there, everyone's seen them and you got to build your act from the ground up again. And it takes a long time to build an act. So he made the calculation in his head. He's not out there for posterity. He's out there for, you know, my jokes are valuable assets and I'm going to keep using them. And that's amazing. Okay. And the last thing I'll say on this is <laughs> to the point of his deranged worldview, he was making a swipe at, like, some comedians. He, he said words to the effect of, you know, I see comedians talk about their inner this or that. Their inner <laughs> and I think, yeah, that'll play great at the Nevada Gravel Manufacturers Convention. <laughs> okay, this is a madman because this is, again, the host of The Tonight Show. He was the host of The Tonight Show because he was worrying about the Nevada Gravel Manufacturers Convention. He wasn't George Carlin, okay? He wasn't Lenny Bruce. He wasn't Bill Hicks, Mark Maron, yeah. or any of these people. His validation came not from expressing himself, but from being number one. 
and remaining number one <laughs> and being able to play any room, whether it's a college, whether it's the Nevada Gravel Manufacturers <laughs> Convention, whether it's the Tonight Show, anywhere, whether it's some stupid corporate gig that he's still taking, even though he probably has more money than God. <laughs> uh, and how can you not love this man? A man that insane, but also that devoted to whatever it is he's devoted to. Well, I gotta say, I mean, I do prefer that to, you know, what I guess is like the more dominant conception of comedy today, which is some version of, you know, it's all about self-expression. You might say comedians are the modern day philosophers or whatever. It's like, I would actually rather just like not do that. Like, there's a handful of people who've ever been able to do that and have it be effective at all, right? Like Carlin, who you mentioned, is somebody who like got away with that, but he was good at it. And now that's just like what everybody's doing. Like you said before, you know, fucking SNL has to pick a side, like whatever. I'll say too, Jay Leno, not one of those anti-woke guys. Right. And I shouldn't have left that out because that's the alternative is that you get up there and you do the same thing, except, yeah, you're philosophizing about how everyone's everyone's offended by everything. No, he's still out there talking about, like, can you believe the cable company or, you know, whatever, whatever idiot shit he was talking about in the 80s, <laughs> you know, any boring garbage. Anyway, if he comes to town, I'm going to go and I'm going to have a great time because I bet he puts on a good show. Well, I mean, that's the last thing I wanted to ask you. I mean, it's like, have you seen any of Jay Leno? stand up because like it, like is it funny because well I, I know we're being like yeah. sort of unusually uh, complimentary about Jay Leno here <laughs> but we're taking a sort of odd route to being complimentary sort of bypassing whether or not what he's doing at all is is it all like any good so is it is it good well if you watch his appearances on Letterman in the 80s and I've seen them all he is good He's not my cup of tea, personally. <laughs> it's a little bit middle of the road. It's a little bit corny. But yeah, I mean, he, he is a consummate craftsman. He was a consummate craftsman. I think that, the, you know, I haven't seen a good episode of The Tonight Show that he hosted. All that shit was pretty, pretty boring. All right, I want to play you something. And I made farmers happy and rich again. And they're doing a fantastic job. And you know what? Someday it'll become time for them to leave this beautiful earth and they'll be able to leave their farm without taxes to their children. I got rid of the death tax on farms so that when you do pass away, on the assumption that you love your children, <laughs> you can leave it to them and they won't have to pay tax. But if you don't love your children so much, and there are some people that don't, and maybe deservedly so, it won't matter. Because frankly, you don't have to leave them anything. Thank you very well, much. Have know, fun. Spoken like a man whose children are Don Jr. and Eric. So, I mean, we got to talk about, we got to talk about Trump, right? I mean, you know, we don't do emergency pods on this podcast, or like if we did, it wouldn't be about Donald Trump. It would be like about, I don't know, a seismic development in the wet movie cinematic universe or something like that. But, you know, I was finding myself becoming, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, I was becoming a little bit Krasenstein brain. You know, I saw the news break that uh, Donald Trump had been indicted and I was you know just like walking down Young Street refreshing my phone being like 
has he been arrested? Is he going to be arrested? What's going on? I was the same. And for the whole buildup of this, well, for the whole fucking six year buildup of this from Russiagate to Mueller to the P tape to whatever <laughs> twists and turns and detours we've taken. None of that did I follow until this week, eight hours, basically, before he was uh, indicted. You it's, know? it's too bad. I mean, it would have been a good grift, right? I'm sure you heard those stories about like the fucking whichever, like some podcast with some name like Mueller. Mueller, she wrote, was yeah, it? Yeah, Mueller, she wrote, yeah. and they literally got, like, a government bailout for small business, like, during the, <laughs> you know, during the pandemic. I mean, I don't know how much needs to be said about this Donald Trump uh, situation. It's fun. I like it's, it. It's a Why lot not? of fun. He's probably going to be arrested next week. Uh, it's very funny. He was posting, like, I have a true social account, like, I follow, because that's where else are you going to see the truth? Well, They're... you know, horseshoe theory, that's where most of your audience <laughs> is, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, you don't, uh, you don't post like tweets on truth social they're called truths and when you retweet you retruth something that's what it, that's that's the terminology but yeah donald trump was sounding pretty confident at one point yesterday and then of course you know he did his post where he said that he'd been indicated um <laughs> so you know that is so funny that he said that but i i found the humor of it blunted so quickly because of course like everybody immediate like it became kafifi like so quickly like that's the thing with trump right a lot of the funny stuff he does it goes from zero to kafifi like because you just have like a million less funny people trying to like weave it into humor he was doing so much funny stuff this week like he did this interview where he was talking about how ron DeSantis had like come to him seeking an endorsement it's just like the most typical trump thing ever where he's talking about how yeah you know he was he was doing so badly he was doing so badly and then he came to me and he was crying and he asked for an endorsement <laughs> and what's so great about that is like if you're Ron DeSantis you can't be like no I wasn't crying I, <laughs> you didn't make me cry I'm a big boy <laughs> you can't you can't say that but then <laughs> Trump throws in this thing about how like DeSantis and his people like wrote an endorsement but then it wasn't very good so then he rewrote it so it was <laughs> so it was better <laughs> I mean incredible incredible uh, but yeah so Trump was indicated this week and like look I feel the same way about this as I feel about as I felt about like you know things like the Mueller investigation and as I've kind of felt even before the Trump presidency that it feels awful to have a president who committed a crime you know <laughs> I was going to say that the uh, cultural Marxist justice system is oh. attacking a patriot actually oh, you know nothing of my work no I mean I feel the same way that I that I have kind of throughout where I feel like you know the institutions of American liberalism have constantly been on the hunt for a non-political solution to Trump their diagnosis of Trump and where he came from, their understanding of what he represents, I think they've tried really hard to kind of sanitize that of any politics. Once you give it political content, you actually have to ask some very difficult questions, which, um, I mean, particularly in 2016, but I think even um, still in many very fundamental ways, despite the last, uh, you know, five or six years, liberals are still just do not want to contemplate really difficult existential questions about the United States and how uh, deeply dysfunctional its politics and culture are. And so, you know, by the same token, I don't think that there's like there's no there's no legalistic solution to Donald Trump. You can't replace political work and, and organizing and like ideological and, and democratic 
repudiation of Donald Trump with the rule of law. Like, that's just not going to work. Having said that, I mean, look, <laughs> saying it's a bad we're, we're thing. We're here for a good time also. Yeah, like, we're, we're, yeah. can't, can't we have a little spice? Right, you know? of course. And and it's like, right, it's like Donald Trump, you know, we don't fully know what the case is going to be, but it like it seems like they've they've got him on... Yeah, Capone for tax on, yeah, evasion. Capone, Capone yeah. kind of shit. I mean, I will say that if like somehow it was like Stormy Daniels that took down Donald Trump, that would be great. That would be a very satisfying, you know, ending <laughs> to the story. But look, I just want to make clear. Yeah, I'm not saying it's like a bad like Donald Trump. If 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 Donald Trump isn't a criminal, words have no meaning. So yeah, like you said, we're here for a good time. One thing that I'm looking forward to, I'm gonna say this uh, on mic now. We're gonna get we're gonna we're gonna let this out into the world right now, so that it can kind of start breathing and eventually become reality. You know, I cannot wait for Donald Trump when he has to run for president from prison to find out about Eugene Debs. <laughs> I want to hear Donald Trump talk about. Eugene Debs so bad. <laughs> I want to hear him. Like I, I can't. I can't wait. They were very unfair to him, <laughs> yeah. uh, folks. Well, there's a lower class. I am in it. Well, there's a criminal element. I am of it. Uh, no, it'll be it'll be fucking amazing. Uh, one more Trump thing I want to bring up, which I think will carry us into our movie for this week. The New York uh, Young Republican Club uh, did a post after he. You know, obviously there was like a. Oh, wave you found of... my alt. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Now a word from our sponsor. Um, no, I mean so. You know, obviously the uh, the announcement of um, Trump's uh, indictment elicited a wave of predictable right wing hysterics. You know, I, I did like that uh, Don Jr. immediately he did an emergency pod. It's like if my dad was arrested, that would definitely be my first instinct. It's like time to suit up and make some damn content. <laughs> you know, the yeah, the Young Republican Club in New York had this uh, had this post, and I just want to read it. Just a few paragraphs here. Let anyone who celebrates this downfall of our republic be forever branded a traitor to our nation. No one who mocks the people's will can claim the title of an American. President Trump embodies the American people, our psyche from id to superego, as does no other figure. His soul is totally bonded with our core values and emotions. God, so much and- of this is just like <laughs> Rob Reiner or whatever talking about Obama. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's that it's that like Ezra Klein thing where he's like, Obama's speeches do not uh, excite or inspire. They elevate, they enmesh yeah. you in a higher moment or whatever. Uh, he is not the word made flesh. She is the triumph of word over flesh. Um, it continues. Yeah, his soul is totally bonded with our core values and emotions, and he is our total and indisputable champion. This tremendous connection threatens the established order. Uh, the fix has always been in against our president, but his motivation and love for the American people drove him to pursue the national excellence that his unique vision perceived lay within our reach. Um, not a great sentence. In doing so, he opened so many eyes to reality. All right. Well, let's get into our film uh, for this week. This one kind of feels like a special episode to me. Uh, I think it was a kind of a high risk, high reward gamble. Folks, before there was Donald Trump, there was Captain Christopher Skipper Sheldon. <laughs> yes, we're of course referring to the the hit 1996 film uh, directed by Ridley Scott, uh, White Squall. You've never heard of it. Make us proud. They sailed for different reasons. I don't want to be what I was when I left. Anonymous. But there was only one way. Climb! To survive on his ship. He deserves another chance. Become a team. Based on a true story of loyalty and courage. Jeff Bridges. In a 
Ridley Scott film, White Squall, rated PG-13. Sneak preview, Saturday, January 27th. So can I say something about Ridley Scott, first of all? He is the master of making movies that when you look at his filmography, you look at it and say, oh, he directed that? And not in a good way. What's an example of that? Hannibal, the uh, <laughs> Silence of the Lambs sequel. Is, is that is that the one where Ray Liotta has like the top of his skull cut off and they like, cut out part of his brains? Like probably one of the dumbest scenes in a movie. Correct. You're like, wait, <laughs> Ridley Scott made that <laughs> yeah. not very good sequel to Silence of the Lambs, or what's another one? Oh, a G.I. Jane. Never you know, you look at you. You're like. Oh, he he made that. To Ro- be fair, Robin he, Hood with Russell Crowe. He did make Alien and Blade Runner. He's made a couple of wonderful movies. Uh, the Duelists, I think, is really terrific. I've also heard good things about The Last Duel, which I haven't seen. Have you oh, seen it? Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. I've forgotten that that's Ridley Scott, but that's uh, yeah, that's a fun movie. I liked it. Oh, it's kind at, of like yeah. a Rashomon-type movie. And hey, he made Thelma and Louise. That's another one. That's another one that you're like, oh, he made that? So an incredible, <laughs> cer- definitely a, an incredible body of work in terms of mass well look it's it's a question that would definitely be asked about this movie not so much about ridley scott but just about the movie because i don't think this is a movie that most people are aware of and it's honestly i knew going into this that just the act of discussing this movie on this show would tickle me because this is the most pointless middle of the road there's nothing there kind of movie and yet and yet It plays a very important role in the QAnon conspiracy theory. And the reasons for that, as with everything QAnon, are very convoluted and kind of opaque. We're not going to do a full discussion about uh, QAnon on this episode. I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit. It definitely plays a role in uh, in kind of my reading of this movie. But you're going to hear, uh, I'm not sure if we'll, we'll tack it onto this episode or it'll otherwise be on the feed, uh, my recent conversation with Will Summer about uh, his new book, Trust the Plan, which is sort of the definitive thing published on QAnon so far. And you will hear me uh, ask him a little bit about uh, the role culture plays in QAnon and uh, this movie specifically. Well, having finally seen this movie now, I'm a little perplexed, like, going into the storm is a bad thing, it seems. No, no, no. Well, well, in the movie, I guess, yeah, but the storm is a good thing in the QAnon right, lore. Right. So did they see the movie or no? <laughs> I think it's actually very difficult to answer that question. I guess, the, uh, do I mean, they think the storm is, well, because not to get too far ahead, but like the storm helps make these boys into men. Right. So. I, I do think that's part of it. Okay, so look, before we get into the movie, let's clear the ground a little bit here and let me just sort of describe what its connection is to QAnon. Okay, so QAnon, right? The the QAnon slogan is "Where we go, one we go all." Okay, <laughs> now this slogan. I'm so happy having watched this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So this slogan appears on like a bell that they ring on the ship. This movie uh, has that phrase in it, and they plucked it from the movie, and they say it all the time. Or did they? Because even here, you know, the actual origins, like the actually explaining where this comes from is very difficult because a lot of Q people wrongly insist, okay, that where we go, one, we go all was a slogan on, I guess, the boat that JFK was on during the Second World War. There's a scene from this movie that they really like, but it's actually not in the movie. (laughs) It's only in the trailer and then it was cut. There's one of a great many misspelt. Trump tweets that cue people some of them anyway 
you know, insist Trump was making a reference to this movie. So they think like Trump is like throwing them a breadcrumb. Like, yeah, watch, watch the Ridley Scott sailing movie. You'll understand a lot about adrenochrome and what the elites <laughs> are doing to children. The other thing is Q himself has posted about this movie, apparently. So Q likes this movie. So let's get into this movie. I, I think just to give everybody kind of a sense of what it is, I would describe it as something like The Breakfast Club meets Moby Dick meets Stand By Me meets the Dead Poets Society. Does that sound about right to you, Will? Yeah, especially the last one. I kind of <laughs> couldn't believe the extent to which they ripped off Dead Poets Society. I've never actually seen the Dead Poets Society. I mean, I think I saw the last scene of it on an airplane once or something. Right. So but... the last scene of this movie will be familiar to yeah, you exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the film recounts the true story of a real-life nautical disaster that occurred in 1962 nearabouts the Bermuda Triangle. In real life, there were 12 teenagers on board. I think four students and two adult crew members died. And in this movie, we learned that that was unfortunate, but the young boys who survived it, it helped prepare them to serve with honor in Vietnam. The hero of the film is Captain Christopher Sheldon, nicknamed Skipper, played pretty well, I think, by Jeff Bridges. Yeah, you know? Jeff Bridges uh, sans beard. He looks uh, he looks pretty cool. And while we're complimenting the film, I just want to say the movie is gorgeous. Like, it's beautifully photographed. I was just watching it thinking like, God, big budget 90s studio movies. They're just so well lit. Uh, <laughs> no CGI. I, oh, God, I, I miss it. We've we've lost that. So like, even you, though you, you, you thought that, uh, you know, the, the, all the shirtless young men were beautifully photographed. I, I mean, I, I will only answer that question off the record. <laughs> anyway, he leads the expedition for all these teenage boys, you know, uh, a bunch of bunch of twinks. Well, it's, it's, it's like bre- it's like Breakfast Club style. It's very like John Hughes movie kind of setup because, you know, you got the nerd, you got oh, the God. Yeah, you yeah. got you got the. The, the rich of, kid. Yeah, the troubled rich kid. It's like, you think that he comes from privilege, but actually, uh, you know, did you know that his uh, dad, he has a difficult relationship? He's the Ethan Hawke character from Dead Poet Society. There are a bunch of other bunch of other kids, too. You know, Yeah, he's the, he's the Estevez from uh, Breakfast Club. That's right. And anyway, they're all here for this, like, summer expedition to learn sailing and perhaps even become <laughs> men. But this is no pleasure cruise. Uh, <laughs> Captain Skipper... <laughs> really believes in his responsibility to mold these young men. This is work. The boys are expected to truly become sailors. And part of his particular ethic on this cruise is, you know, he rides them pretty hard, uh, 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 no, no <laughs> pun intended at all yeah. when they're on their duties, but when they're ashore, you know, when they're, you know, visiting international waters, you know, uh, he kind of turns a blind eye. So if they're smoking, if they're drinking, if they're carousing, if they're, uh, satisfying certain curiosities, the boys that age begin to have, uh, he's, he's just looking the other way and, and, and that's all fine. There are many adventures on the ship. Uh, they they meet some sinister Cubans. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll we'll talk about that, that was, scene. I love that. You know what I like is all the sort of male bonding stuff, where it'll be like uh, one of the wimpier characters will say something that rubs one of the more alpha higher T ones the wrong way, and then he'll respond by like grabbing the other guy's nutsack and being like, "What the fuck did you say?" Right. Lots of good stuff like that. This movie is another example. We've talked about like divorced dad comedies from the. <laughs> 
90s, you know, <laughs> the crisis of the family movies. But there's also a huge trend of crisis of masculinity movies in the 90s. I've brought up this book multiple times on the podcast that has been almost completely forgotten, but which I swear was very influential in the 90s called Iron John, which was by some guy named Robert Bly. And the whole thesis was in this increasingly like feminized society with our like, you know, Starbucks frappuccinos and our <laughs> IKEA furniture and, and, and our touchy feely, you know, chicken soup for the soul shit. Men are losing touch with their inner man. We've got to get back out to nature. We got to have drum circles in the woods, <laughs> eat meat right, right off the stick above yeah, the fire. Yeah, it's like that corner of sort of reactionary masculinity where it's like the straightest thing of all is to be where there are absolutely no women. <laughs> yeah. Although I guess we should say with the caveat that in this movie, like there is a woman, like for some reason, Jeff Bridges just like brings his wife. I, and I'm not I, really sure what function she serves in the movie. So I'm not sure if that's based on truth, if the real guy in real life had a wife. Uh, but I know what function she serves in the movie, which is that some studio executive said, hey, this looks a little... Um, gotta, gotta, <laughs> this, looks, this looks a little something or other. Yeah, <laughs> so we, we better get a woman on this ship, preferably an age-appropriate yeah, yeah, woman. Yeah, they, some studio executive was like, okay, guys, look, we saw that we saw the screenplay, and like, yeah, we think this is promising, but I don't know. You know, the idea of Jeff Bridges is just out, you know... He's 45 years he's, old yeah, with out, a bunch of 15-year-olds. He's out with all these you know, shirtless, uh, you know, 15-year-old boys in, in short pants. Like, we're all at sea, which is inherently kind of homosexual place. Uh, can, can, can we just, like have like a, a, a female character on board so that we know that Jeff Bridges fucks in the right way. And also, and also, can we have a lot of scenes where like they are on some island somewhere and a whole busload of Dutch girl yeah. tourists come. I'm who sorry. Are their age. What is that scene? Okay, so you know. There, okay. It's like the castle anthrax it's, from Monty Python. It's, you know? it's ridiculous. Okay, so this scene, you know, yeah, there's as well. I mean, so there's really, there's, there's so little that actually happens in this movie. And by the way, it is. And yet so much of yo, it. So so much. I feel like I've been on such a voyage. I've learned so much about myself. I feel like ever more bonded to you as my podcast co-host. We've gone on this journey together. But, you know, this movie is over two hours long. Easily could cut 40 minutes. You could cut out the... Let's cut two hours right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right, right. Uh, and yeah, most of it, you know, basically there's like, I guess, three acts. There's like act one where, you know, the ship is waiting to depart and there's a surprisingly, like, I don't know, it's gotta be like 45 minutes like before they even set out. I was and so bored. The film is just impressing on you like, okay, these are the characters. You got the wimpy one. You got the one who's rich and has like a dad who's difficult. You got whatever. You got all that stuff. That's your breakfast club setup. And then, you know, it's a little while before you meet the captain, but don't worry. You know, uh, you know it's like a Moby Dick. You know, it takes like 150 pages before Ahab like finally comes up from below deck. Jeff Bridges comes up and the film's like, here, you got, you got a dependable, uh, competent patriarch who's gonna, you know, over see these young boys and turn them into men somehow by like I don't know, going around the world on this like 80 year old pirate ship, or which I don't really know if that's in the movie, but in the real life version, that's what yeah. it was. Maybe I think it was maybe a 40 year old pirate ship going from port to port, wherever the Dutch teenage girls yeah, are. Right. So I'm getting to that. So basically that's act one sets up all that stuff. And then act two is just, you know, is just various like, yeah, adventures. And the one Will's talking about is, you know, it's kind of a coming of age movie. So inevitably you have stuff very paint by the numbers. It's like, okay, time to run the sexual awakening script and so 
you know, there's one part uh, where they land on some island and there's, you know, this attractive uh, woman who, you know, one of them is going to go and pay for sex with. And then she sort of very sensually tells him to just like wait here. And then another woman who's less attractive uh, comes out and, uh, you know, that's what he's going to pay for. And he runs away because he's not having any of this. So there's like various like adventures like that. But then there's some other scene where, yeah, they arrive at an island and then the whole way it's conceived is so ridiculous because the ship is just pulling up to this island and it's just all these young women in white dresses, like just running up to them, like mobbing them like they're the fucking Beatles or something, <laughs> like landing in the United States to go on Ed Sullivan. And yeah, they're, it, it's not really clear. You, you said they were Dutch tourists. It's, they seemed like they were like Dutch schoolgirls, which like, why are they on this island that's presumably somewhere in the Caribbean. Did they know the ship was coming? None of them speak a word of English. So, but then, you know, the... So much the better for these lads. Yeah, Chuck, who's sort of like, I guess, like the closest the movie has to an audience surrogate character, played by a guy called Scott Wolf, who, by the way, looks like he played a secondary character on a bad Wesley Crusher episode of, you know, season one or two of Star Trek The Next Generation. I was so certain that he had appeared in a role like that. I could not believe that that was not, in fact, the case. Anyway, so Scott Wolf, who plays Chuck, yeah, he just ends up, you know, uh, yeah, losing his virginity to some nice Dutch girl who, yeah, doesn't speak a word of English, whatever. Completely ridiculous scene, like so much of the little adventures they have. A lot of future stars among the young men. There's Ryan Felipe. There's uh, Jeremy Sisto from Clueless. There's Balthazar Getty from Lost Highway, who uh, David Foster Wallace had such harsh words for in his essay. Uh, but the Jeremy Sisto character, Frank Beaumont, uh, is really the kind of emotional center of the movie. He's the rich kid with the overbearing father. And two-thirds of the way through the movie, actually, he gets so kind of angry, so alienated that he grabs a harpoon and he sees an innocent dolphin in the ocean and he just harpoons it. He I just got, kills I, it. I gotta say, that was a very upsetting scene I to watch. F- I found so too, yes. Because he's just, you know, he's had this bad experience where his... And again, this doesn't make any sense, right? Like his overbearing parents and his his dad is especially overbearing. They're the only parents who came onto the boat in the first act. They brought him there, you know, late. The dad drops a cigarette onto the deck of Jeff Bridges' ship because he's got no friggin' respect. But then, yeah, they're on this Caribbean island. This is the same place with the, the, the Dutch girls. And then his dad is just there and like basically like wrestles him to the ground because he like talks back or something. And yeah, the next day they're out at sea. And he just wants to assert power over something. something. And yeah, there's these dolphins and he just shoots one of them. And then Jeff Bridges is like, OK, son, well, you got to kill it. Like they bring it onto the deck. It's still alive. He's punctured the lung of the dolphin. Oh, so, so it's going to die anyway. And it actually is really awful. It's I don't really know. Upsetting. I don't Ever like since it. I became a a pet owner i become very sensitive <laughs> towards uh depictions of animal cruelty yeah. so yeah it is difficult to watch but because this kid frank doesn't even have the decency to do a mercy killing for this animal who he's fatally wounded jeff bridges said you're off the ship And this, in the long run, helps lead to Jeff Bridges' downfall because (laughs) – so, okay, well, before we get to that, what about the Cubans? Right, right. So one of the other adventures, uh, which in a way I was sort of glad that uh, this appeared because I feel like it just explained a little more uh, for me why QAnon people would be into this movie. You know, apparently this whole kind of mistaken conception that where we go one, we go all was actually like something that was like associated with JFK, which like it's literally not. It's literally just from this fucking movie. 
movie. But partway through Act Two, they're just listening to Kennedy give like a, a speech during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and this does not seem to like serve any function. It's so funny. It's like they're out at sea, the Cuban Missile Crisis is happening. They're listening to this, but like they don't actually seem to react to it at all. It doesn't serve any narrative purpose in the movie except to tell you like, oh yeah, it's 1962 by the way. It's October and, 1962. And also be, be careful around Cuba. That's <laughs> right, that's right, right. what it's saying. Right, don't right. go too close. So the film eventually like it, yeah. It works its way up to what I guess is, yeah, one of the other adventures they have, which is like, yeah, they're just like going through Cuban waters. And then, yeah, the bad guys is like the Cuban Coast Guard or whatever who, who are, come up. Who are and, pirates, basically. Yeah, they're basically pirates. And I fucking love this because it's like you find out, uh, you know, I think it's mentioned that, uh, yeah, the, the, the ship is actually like going to the Bay of Pigs. Don't forget, it's 1962. Like, it's just after the Cuban Revolution, right? The Cuban people have just driven the American Empire off of their shores. They have just liberated the themselves from the you know fucking united fruit company and this film was made during the 90s and like the way that it frames this whole thing yeah like, can you believe this ship just went into cuban waters <laughs> yeah yeah right and, around the time and, of the bay of pigs yeah. and they and they did and yeah the cubans didn't like the, it they had the nerve to brandish guns yeah 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 <laughs> it's so funny and then yeah there's like some bullshit about like uh they say they're at there there's a cook on the ship by the way who speaks spanish and it also seems to exist for no other reason in this movie except so that he can be useful during the scene. But he explains that, uh, yeah, they say they're acting on direct orders from Fidel Castro, which I love the idea that, like, Fidel Castro <laughs> is just, like, giving orders to, like, the Cuban military, like, make sure that there are no class trips, you know, <laughs> on, like, creaky old, like, rickety pirate ships, like, yeah. out in our waters. Yeah, you know? yeah, he doesn't delegate matters. Yeah, yeah that's right. But uh, what, what I really liked about this scene is that Jeff Bridges <laughs> starts quoting, like, the Geneva Convention <laughs> and international law at the we spit on international law in cuba (laughs) yeah we spit on your freedom right 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 yeah i love the idea that uh the united states can like piously quote international law in 1962 to the people of cuba this scene is obviously like a conservative viewer you probably like the scene because it's just like completely boneheaded you know american nationalism just like look at these like cuban savages yeah like sea pirates whatever but then the scene ends when they sort of talk you know the cubans off the ship or whatever and uh, one of them responds by you know the cuban captain responds by smashing the compass and then jeff bridges you know very alphaly tells him in spanish that a real sailor only needs the stars. Wow. You know, maybe a real sailor wouldn't fuck up his ship in the middle of a white squall. Maybe he wouldn't Maybe he wouldn't cruise his ship right into the eye of the storm. But unfortunately, that's what Captain Bridges does. All right. So into Act 3, the storm. The storm is upon us. I mean, what is there to say about the storm? It's terrible. Several people die. His wife dies. Um, oh, also, by the way, sorry, there's one other character we should mention who's hilarious. There's so much, like extraneous shit in this movie i'm forgetting the name of the character but there's a guy on the on the ship who like doesn't say anything like he doesn't speak normally he just he just quotes poetry like he's just quoting like keats and like homer and shit like that yeah he's the english (laughs) professor i looked i looked that up after so yeah they they go into the store and people die he's the guy on a q message board who like while everybody else is like trying to like deconstruct things and writing like five thousand word posts all he does is post memes so the ship (laughs) gets tipped over and in act three one of the big tension points is (laughs) Did Bridges give 
give the right order to the kid? Did the kid ignore the order? Who is at fault for the accident? Well, ultimately, when Bridges is put on... Well, not trial. Well, this is what's so funny is it's not even a real trial. The stakes of it are whether he's going to lose his master seaman's license, which the trial is about like whether the greatest signifier, whether the man is going to take away like the greatest signifier of his masculinity, which is his master seaman's license. And by being a master seaman, that gives him the freedom to have like sovereignty over a ship of young boys, you know, not governed by, you know, uh, the laws of the land. So for all intents and purposes, it is a courtroom scene, though, even though it has, you know, it's a, it's a kangaroo court if I ever saw one. The prosecuting attorney, who, I, I guess, uh, lists some fairly damning charges against Captain Bridges. You know, he let the kids smoke and drink and carouse. And uh, and, and he's like, yeah, challenged one of them to a fist fight or something. Yeah, and, and he was putting these... He, he, wo- made, he made one of them whose dad died of falling off a roof and who's afraid of height. He makes him climb the rigging. And it's like, the scene is so funny to watch because you're sitting there... And you're thinking, well, you know what? That actually is pretty bad. And it's like, if, you, if you're a grown man and you have, like, responsibility for all these, like, young boys, you probably shouldn't be, like, challenging them to a fist fight and, like, making a kid with, like, horrible trauma. And maybe, like, and just, maybe just, yeah, it. a bunch of 15-year-olds with no actual experience yeah. as sailors maybe shouldn't be doing a trip right. this ambitious. Right, right. And yet, in the film, in the context of the film, you're supposed to be sitting there as the viewer and be like, God, I can't believe that the, you know, Department of Seamen's Licensing would do this to Jeff Bridges. On all these technicalities. (laughs) Finally, one of the kids is going to try to take the fall for him, but he realizes that actually the ultimate masculinity, (laughs) the ultimate phallic symbol is being able to give up your seaman's license and say, you know what? I'm not going to let any kids take the fall. A real man is someone who owns their responsibility, who owns the fact that, yes, I I was the captain of of this ship that got several people killed, and maybe I should have sank with it. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think they end. Up, they do end up taking his license. Okay, right? I was so confused by this at the end because he does the dirty hairy thing. It's like, give me your gun and badge. He puts his fucking license on the judge's stand. He's on his way out, and then and then one of the fucking kids before he goes out stops Captain Jeff Bridges and says, "Don't go, don't go." <laughs> where we go, one we go. Where all. we go, one we go all. Like, what happened? Did you lie to us when you said we were all part of the same team? And Bridges is like all but saying, "Look, I I deserve to have my license take. Please, I failed you. Let me go." I guess is the implication. I mean, I'll read the monologue in a second because it's how the film ends. But is the indication that like this act of of like manly solidarity has like saved his master seaman's life i guess so because the implication is that yes he was the captain but they were all captain they were all responsible <laughs> right, for this right. so co-captain my captain right and so everyone stands up practically on their desks as if for robin williams and he leaves and yeah in the closing narration the kid says they didn't take his license but he never he never sailed again <laughs> yes which i don't understand how they didn't he gave up his how did they not take his license just because a bunch of kids stood up i'm still confused but the film ends with a monologue from chuck who says they didn't take his ticket today but i wonder if he'll ever go to sea again i know one thing if he did we'd all go with him to a man no doubt not even a question today he joined the circle he created by allowing us to share his burden the burden of sea captains and fathers the burden of men in the end it just comes down to one thing 
you can't run from the wind. So true. So true. And then there's just the film closes with this like this fucking sting song that I'd never heard. (laughs) Just like from that period post 10 Summoner's Tales era where Sting is just doing this kind of like, I don't know, mostly not very good sort of white man soul. Like, you know, the period that gave us, you know, Desert Rose, Lady Lay or all that kind of shit. And we get some closing text that informs us that all the surviving kids went off and served in Vietnam nobly. And (laughs) that's right you know they yeah yeah. having stared down the communist menace in cuba they (laughs) stared it down in the face of uh the vietnamese peasants they were terrorizing so all right look um this movie's got a bunch of things that obviously conservatives particularly of a certain generation would like okay it's got a patina of uncritical yeah sort of meat-headed american nationalism it's got some jfk shit which like look that shouldn't be stuff that conservatives like, but it's become huge in the QAnon lore, I think, just because, like, conservatives and QAnon people especially, like, a lot of them are, you know, they're often, like, older, technologically kind of inept. So JFK is just, like, a nostalgic reference point for them. And probably they also think the deep state killed him, Yeah, right? of course, yeah, of yeah. course. You know, uh, this is a film that has, like, shirtless young men bonding at sea under the, you know, firm but fair tutelage of an older, you know, patriarchal figure who isn't bound by law but who, you know, makes his own law. Yeah, it's got a big fucking, it's got a big storm in it, um, which is, you know obviously central to the Q lore. But so if I have a political reading in this movie, I think it would be that, at least in relation to QAnon, the fact that this film is fundamentally unremarkable and middle of the road, yet has had this entire kind of heroic theology you know, partly erected on top of it or or at least drawing from it. I think that's very interesting because if there's one essential element to QAnon, if there's one thing that explains it better than anything else, if there's one thing that it does and which it, you know, offers its its zealots and its loyalists, it's the projection of heroic narratives onto conventional reality, right? It's the epic dramatization of the quotidian in both the realm of politics and the realm of culture. The fact that there is nothing here that isn't fundamentally generic and like paint by the numbers and yet they've blown it up into this massive kind of heroic thing like that is the point and you know further i would say like this is based on a true story which i think almost by definition means there's like a meta element to this because whenever hollywood adapts a true story there's bound to be an element of hyperbole and narrative stylization so the cute people boring from this is heroic stylization on top of heroic stylization even the story of this movie not the true story but you know the 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 story within the universe of the movie is an example of that you know what the fuck is this adventure they're going on it's just a bunch of young boys that are so privileged like literally like the antecedents to like later suburban trump vote like literally guys that are like the right age to grow up in the QAnon people later and become obsessed with donald trump like privileged suburban white kids who are well off enough to just like skip the you know their their last year of school to go off on a fucking cruise around the world and yet that whole thing is blown up into some yeah epic tale of masculinity and man you know, it is this ridiculous and pointless quest, you know, live action role playing, which is exactly what QAnon is. 
the storm will never come, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's the friends you made along the way. It's all the fucking posts you got to do and deconstruct. It's all the boring uh, bits of culture that you kind of like plucked from obscurity and like situated within your heroic narrative about how the guy from The Apprentice is part of a fucking century long crusade against all evil. And he's going to bring about the storm, which is going to, you know, take you into the new world. You know, at one point in the film, Chuck has a monologue where he says, we entered into a new ocean and a new world uh, with which to make our own. Today, I finally understood Homer. The journey is the thing. I certainly hope that, uh, you know, now that Donald Trump has been indicted, you know, the QAnon people themselves will cleave to that. The journey is the thing, because I'm starting to think the storm might not actually be coming. Todd, I appreciate what you're trying to do here. Maybe you could live with it, but I couldn't. If you think I'm going to let a 17-year-old take responsibility, then you underestimate me. The Albatross was my ship. The Ocean Academy was my school. Her responsibility is mine and mine alone. Well, folks, before we leave for today, I do just briefly want to mention, yes, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Michael and us. Extra episode every week, five Yankee dollars a month. Recent episodes have tackled such very important films as Super Mario Brothers from 1993, (laughs) Empire Records, as well as such very important TV shows as Vanderpump Rules, uh, as well as the cinema of Guy Madden. We recently talked about his film, The Saddest Music in the World. There might be a little more Guy Madden coming up, uh, one of our very favorite Canadian filmmakers, and a recent episode on the film criticism of Armand White. So again, patreon.com slash Michael and us. Yep, we recently moved into the top 250 of all Patreon-based podcast. Worldwide, that is. Uh, so pretty cool. Wow. Well, where we go one, we go all. That's <laughs> you guys, too, are in there. Yeah. To everyone who has subscribed already, thank you so much. And if you're listening to this and you haven't subscribed, consider giving it a try. we got a lot more goodies at patreon.com slash us. Now you have something to share with the listeners. Yeah, look, folks, uh, I thought at the end of this episode, I really wanted a palate cleanser. You know, I I think doing uncomfortable things, doing things you don't like builds character. You know, we ventured away from shore out into the stormy seas of a pretty tedious Ridley Scott film from uh, 1996. And I don't know, the whole time, partly because of this character in White Squall that just keeps sort of quoting, you know, John Keats and stuff like that. I just kept thinking of like better things that involve the sea. And so inevitably, I thought of Moby Dick, and I wanted to just read uh, a very special passage to send us out here. There's no connection to the movie except it involves the sea. And I thought that it would make Will and I and also you, the listener, uh, feel better at the end of this whole experience. Now, there are so many memorable passages in Moby Dick. There are so many things that I could read. I mean, I was going to just read the first passage, you know, call me Ishmael. But that one, I think, is a little too well known. There are so many passages in Moby Dick that are among my favorite bits of prose ever written. I think the conclusion to chapter 58 of Moby Dick is one of the most beautiful passages ever written in the English language. I'm going to read the whole chapter uh, to you. The chapters in Moby Dick are very short, and uh, the last few paragraphs especially are, uh, are just incredibly beautiful. Steering northeastward from the Crozettes, we fell in with vast meadows of Brit, the minute yellow substance upon which the right whale largely feeds. For leagues and leagues it undulated around us, so that we seemed to be sailing through boundless fields of ripe and golden wheat. 
On the second day, numbers of right whales were seen, who, secure from the attack of a sperm whaler like the Pequod, with open jaws, sluggishly swam through the Brit, which, adhering to the fringing fibers of that wondrous Venetian blind in their mouths, was in that manner separated from the water that escaped at the lip. As morning mowers, who side by side, slowly and seethingly, advance their size through the long wet grass of marshy meads, even so these monsters swam, making a strange grassy cutting sound, and leaving behind them endless swaths of blue upon the yellow sea. But it was only the sound they made as they parted the Brit, which it all reminded one of mowers. Seen from the mastheads, especially when they paused and were stationary for a while, their vast black forms looked more like lifeless masses of rock than anything else. And as in the great hunting countries of India, the stranger at a distance will sometimes pass on the plains recumbent elephants without knowing them to be such, taking them for bare, blackened elevations of the soil. Even so, often with him who for the first time beholds the species of the leviathans of the sea. And even when recognized at last, their immense magnitude renders it very hard really to believe that such bulky masses of overgrowth can possibly be instinct in all parts with the same sort of life that lives in a dog or a horse. Indeed, in other respects, you can hardly regard any creatures of the deep with the same feelings that you do those of the shore. For though some old naturalists have maintained that all creatures of the land are of their kind in the sea, and though taking a broad general view of the thing, this may very well be, yet coming to specialities, where, for example, does the ocean furnish any fish that in disposition answers to the sagacious kindness of the dog? The accursed shark alone can in any generic respect be said to bear comparative analogy to him. But though, to landsmen in general, the native inhabitants of the seas have ever been regarded with emotions unspeakably unsocial and repelling, though we know the sea to be an everlasting terra incognita, so that Columbus sailed over numberless unknown worlds to discover his one superficial western one, though by vast odds the most terrific of all mortal disasters have immemorially and indiscriminately befallen tens and hundreds of thousands of those who have gone upon the water. Though but a moment's consideration will teach that however baby man may brag of his science and skill, and however much in a flattering future that science and skill may augment, yet forever and forever, to the crack of doom, the sea will insult and murder him, and pulverize the stateliest, stiffest frigate he can make. Nevertheless, by the continual repetition of those very impressions, man has lost that sense of the full awfulness of the sea which aboriginally belongs to to it. The first boat we read of floated on an ocean that, with Portuguese vengeance, had whelmed the whole world without leaving so much as a widow. That same ocean rolls now. That same ocean destroyed the wrecked ships of last year. Yea, foolish mortals, Noah's flood has not yet subsided. Two-thirds of the fair world it yet covers. Wherein defer the sea and the land that a miracle upon one is not a miracle upon the other? Preternatural terrors rested upon the Hebrews when under the feet of Korah and his company, the live ground opened and swallowed them up forever. Yet not a modern sun ever sets, but in precisely the same manner, the live sea swallows up ships and crews. But not only is the sea such a foe of man who is an alien to it, 
but it is also a fiend to its own offspring, worse than the Persian host who murdered his own guests, sparing not the creatures which itself hath spawned, like a savage tigress that tossing in the jungle overlays her own cubs, so the sea dashes even the mightiest whales against the rock, and leaves them there side by side with the split wrecks of ships. No mercy, no power but its own controls it. Panting and snorting like a mad battle steed that has lost its rider, the masterless ocean overruns the globe. Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider once more the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. Consider all this, and then turn to this green, gentle, and most docile earth. Consider them both, the sea and the land, and do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? For as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man there lies one insular Tahiti, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all the horrors of the half-known life. God keep thee, push not off that isle, thou canst never return.